Amen. We're in that section of Romans that is focused on the question of how we as Christians should live our lives day to day. In the beginning of this section, started with chapter 12, Paul first challenged us to live holy and righteously, lives that are holy and acceptable for God. Secondly, he challenged us in the remainder of chapter 12 to love others as we've been loved, to allow the love of God to be the guiding principle of our lives. That was chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, he addressed our role as citizens and our obligation to those who have the rule over us. That was the first seven verses of chapter 13. And now we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 13 well, where Paul will address our conduct towards one another. If you follow me, Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Amen. That is the remainder of chapter 13. And with the grace of God, we're going to cover that in the next few moments. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I'm asking God that in the next few moments, you allow the word of God to speak into our hearts and in our lives. Touch us. Change us. Let us never be the same again. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. amen. You may be seated. Verse 8 begins this way. Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So chapter 12 ended with the admonishment to pay our taxes. Remember that? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give him his proper due. Now Paul starts the eighth verse, the very next verse, in that same vein of thought. However, instead of stressing our obligation to pay our debt to society, as it were, he is now focused on our obligation to pay our debts in general. Oh, no man anything. First of all, this is not a prohibition against debt in general. A prohibition against debt or against taking out a loan would be a radical departure from the message of the rest of the Bible. The Old Testament law contains provision for debts and even gives rules governing debts and governing loans and how to, how to handle them. In the New Testament, Jesus actually admonishes his followers to be ready to loan money to those who may be in need whenever they can. That teaching of Jesus would be inconsistent with a prohibition against all loans. That makes it highly unlikely then that Paul is saying here that we should never have a loan. Amen? The words, owe no man anything, are a statement that we should pay what we owe when we owe it. Amen? Not that you can't be indebted, but that when you have a debt, you ought to take care of it in a timely manner. It's not wrong to enter into a loan agreement. However, the Christian must be intentional about paying his debts when they come due. The prohibition here is not against having a loan. It's a prohibition against having an outstanding loan. A loan is not due until it's due. The debts, I owe uh, more money on my house than I'm going to have in my bank account all year long. The bank isn't concerned with the total amount that I owe on my house. They're concerned that I make the payment every month. 
Amen. My debt this month is is due when it's due. And when the due date arrives, then that my due date was the 10th. And I paid my, my house payment on the 10th because that's whenever it was due. I, I didn't I didn't owe them anything on the 9th. It was just an upcoming debt. And then on the 11th, amen, my debt was already taken care of because I have my, my house payment automatically debited from the checking account so that it's taken care of. Amen. So that's the principle that's in effect. A debt is is not due until it's due, but once it's due, it becomes outstanding. And what Paul is saying is, don't extend yourself to the point that you can't pay your debts. Amen? I know we live in a culture where that seems to be the norm. It's easy. Uh, credit comes easy, and the ways uh, to extend yourself beyond uh, your income are easy to stumble into, and and you quickly find yourself in a place where where you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, and you're 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 doing everything you can, struggling to get by. What Paul is saying here is, as a believer, as a Christian, as an example of the the principles that Jesus Christ taught, as the world looks at you and intends to see Christ in you, you should pay your debts. Amen. It's that simple. Every banker says amen. He says this, though. But, oh, no man anything but. The but is an exception to that command. You're to pay every debt, but there is one debt that you will never be able to fully repay. And it is that one debt that you are allowed to have an outstanding balance on, but love one another. That is the debt that you have, a moral obligation, a debt to love one another. And that debt, unlike all other debts, can never be completely paid off. But what Paul says is really the introduction of the statement about owing no man anything is a way to get to here. Amen. What he's saying, just as much as as a Christian, you're supposed to be faithful in discharging your financial debts. You're supposed to be that faithful in your effort to discharge your debt of love to your fellow man. Amen. Even though... Our, that debt will never be fully paid, even though our obligation to, our, to love our fellow man will never be fully satisfied, even though it is an exception to the rule, we, we'll never see it completely paid off. Amen. We're supposed to love. We have a debt to love. We are to love as we've been loved. Jesus Christ so loved us that he made the ultimate sacrifice. He carried our cross, our sins to his cross and he died in our place. And with that great sacrifice in view, we'll never be able to say we've loved enough. We'll never be able to say we've satisfied our debt of love. He gave everything. He poured out his life. He poured out his blood on the cross. And we'll never be able to reach the place that we can say we've completely satisfied that debt. Amen? We'll always owe that debt. But we're to be just as faithful to that debt as we are to the others. He goes on and continuing in the principle of love. says, for he that loveth. Another hath fulfilled the law. So love fulfills the requirements of the law. The moral law of God governs how we treat our fellow man. But Paul appeals to a higher principle. Amen. Love would compel us to fully and completely treat our neighbor in a way that we would want to be treated. If we would love like we have been loved, we'll never struggle to fulfill the law of God. We'll never struggle to fulfill the commandments of God regarding our relationships with others, the moral law of God. If we would just operate on a simple principle, love like we've been loved, love like Christ loved us, we'd never struggle to fulfill the law. Verse 9 continues that line of thought. He says, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. There, there are six moral laws listed there. Amen. They're there to establish the veracity of Paul's statement in the last verse. If you'll love 
you'll keep the law. Amen. There, there are various examples of the moral law. They all pertain to interpersonal relationships. And this is what he says. Uh, the, the, first is the killing, this, the adultery, kill, steal, bear false witness, covet, and if there be any other commandment. So he takes in the whole rest of the breadth, the scope, the expanse of the law of God. It is briefly comprehend, comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So the list is not comprehensive, but it's a list of examples of principles that Paul has in mind. And all of those principles are wrongs against our fellow man. Adultery, murder, theft, false witness, covetousness. And these are things that you would not do to someone you loved. Amen? You, you don't you don't do those things to someone that you love and want to be treated as you would want yourself to be treated. And then, of course, Paul ends that with the open-ended statement, uh, that if there be any other commandment. With that statement, he takes in the whole moral law of God, the whole moral code that governs our interpersonal relationships. In other words, this isn't limited to just those six things. Every moral law, everything that deals with interpersonal relationships, amen, can be summed up in one simple commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The only real question left to answer is who is your neighbor? Now we learn the answer to that question from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Our neighbor is not just our friends. Our neighbor is not just our relative. Our neighbor is not just someone that we are familiar with. We like to limit our neighbor to those in our circle acquaintances. We like to limit our neighbor to those that maybe have some type of relationship to us. But the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us that our neighbor is anyone that we encounter, especially someone who is in need. He's my neighbor. She's my neighbor. Amen? Our neighbor is our fellow man. If we love others, all others, without exception, Without exclusion. They don't have to look the same as we look. They don't have to be the same ethnicity that we are. They don't have to have the same values that we have. They don't have to believe the same that we believe. If we would treat every single person that we encounter, despite whatever differences there may be between us, as we would want to be treated, amen, that would take care of fulfilling the full moral law of God regarding interpersonal relationships. Amen. If we love others like we have, would want to be loved and like we have been loved, then we will fulfill the law of God. Verse 10 says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this verse restates the principle of the first two. Just in case you haven't been paying attention, just in case you skimmed over verses 8 and 9, Paul points it out again. Love does not harm its neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. If we truly love folks, we'll do them no harm. Amen. If we truly love folks, we won't do anything bad to them. And by so doing, we will be faithful to the law of God. Now, the next verse marks a change. Uh, it's a change of tone in the chapter. Instead of focusing on what we should do, Paul now shifts the focus to why we should do it. Often it's not enough just to tell someone what they should do. It's very important that people, especially in this day and age, comprehend why they need to do. It's no, it's, it, my dad used to say it because I said so. And that was supposed to be good enough. Well, because I said so isn't good enough anymore. Amen. There has to be a reason why. And so Paul gives us a reason why. Verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. So knowing the time. 
We should do these things. We should live right. We should treat folks right because we understand the significance of the time in which we live. Paul's point is that we, we should do all that we can to be morally diligent, to treat folks right, and to live right because of the urgency of the hour, because of the time in which we live. And what does he say at that time? He says that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. It's time to wake up. It's time to get busy. It's time to apply ourselves to what we know we should be doing. It's time to be ready. It's time to be responsible for our actions. It's time to be involved in keeping the law of God. It's time to wake up. Now, sleep is a metaphor that's often used in the New Testament to convey the notion of carelessness or apathy or indifference. It represents a lethargic Christian life that, that is just kind of bumbling along, that is not busy serving the Lord, that's not busy being involved in the work of the kingdom of God, that is not seeking out ways to fulfill our obligation to the kingdom of God, but it's just kind of bumbling along, How, you know, like you are on Saturday morning before you get your cup of coffee. Yeah, just kind of just, you know, getting by by filling things out as you go. You know, you just kind of just out of it. That's what the context is of sleep in the New Testament. It is that context of the believer that is is not fully awake, is not fully aware, that is just kind of just kind of uh, bumbling his way through uh, living for God and serving God with a with an apathetic and careless and indifferent attitude. You know, one thing that all sleepers have in common is that they don't like to wake up. You notice that when the alarm goes off early in the morning. We're all reluctant to jump out of bed and get busy, when, especially on Monday morning. Amen. We're all reluctant to jump up and go start a new work week, new set of problems and circumstances, and end that weekend of rest and refreshing and launch back into the work week and all the, the responsibilities that come along with it. The bed is soft, it's warm, it's comfortable, it's very appealing. We want to stay right there. Amen. And, and we may lay there for just a little bit longer because we know we need to get up, but Brother Donnie, we just don't want to get up. Thank God for the snooze button. You know, put it off for another five minutes or three minutes or nine minutes or however long it is, just, just snooze it for just a minute and just take just a moment to enjoy the comfort of the bed. But eventually, that moment arrives when we look at the clock and we realize the hour is late. We've laid there too long. If we don't get out of bed and get busy, we're almost out of time. And if we don't jump up and, and get frantic in our actions, we're not going to get where we need to be by the time that we need to be there. And the realization of the time is what spurs us into action. That's what causes us to jump. We didn't want to get up. We don't want to get up any more then than we did 30 minutes before. Amen? But the understanding of the time causes us to jump up and do what we didn't necessarily want to do. That's exactly what Paul is saying. We should recognize the urgency of the hour and the, the recognition of the urgency of the hour should shake us from our sleepy lethargy about the things of God, from that, that sleepy apathy about serving God and should spur us into action, should cause us to become active in the kingdom of God. So the question is then, what is so urgent about the hour. We know on Monday morning it's 8 o'clock. If you're still laying in bed and you're in Lake City and you're still laying in bed at 745, you're late. 
I can testify to this. Amen. If you're, if you, you know, it's, it's that hour. Well, what's so urgent about this hour? The day of salvation is closer than it's ever been before. That's where the urgency of the hour comes from. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The Bible sometimes speaks of salvation as a past tense event. You were lost. You came to the altar. You repented your sins. You were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He filled you with the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost. And, and you, you've been saved, right? Amen. So sometimes it views salvation as a past tense occurrence, a past tense event, something that we have done, uh, something that we have realized in our lives. Other times, the Word of God speaks of salvation as a present tense occurrence. In other words, that event was not the end of the story. We repented, we were baptized in Jesus' name, we were filled with the Holy Ghost, and we were saved. But there's a process now by which we live, and we remain faithful to the, to the Word of God and to the principles of godliness and holiness and righteousness, and we remain saved. Amen? And we're warned often through Scripture about the possibility of losing that status. And so the Bible speaks of salvation as something you maintain. It's something that's present tense. It's something that is ongoing. And then at other times, it speaks of salvation as a future tense event, as something that has not yet occurred. Now, you, you repented your sins. You're baptized in Jesus' name. You were filled with the Holy Ghost, and you're living a life of righteousness. But ultimately, you're not saved until you get to heaven. Amen. Ultimately, you're not saved until that day that the gates of heaven swing open wide and you come walking through into that promised tense and so uh, that promised place. And so the future tense way of speaking about salvation is a reminder to us that we aren't fully saved until this this world and all of its pitfalls and all of its temptation lies forever behind us. On that day that we walk through heaven's open door. Amen. So it is our duty then to hold fast to the faith. To guard our souls. And to be faithful to the very moral law of God that love fulfills. Because the day of our salvation. That day when we're finally going to get there. Is nearer now. Than it was when we started. Amen. Verse 12 says. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Listen, folks, Jesus is coming back for his church. It's still true. And he has not come yet, but his coming is closer now than it ever has been. That day is upon us. That day is quickly arriving. Amen. And what Paul is saying is the urgency of the hour is the understanding that that time is at hand. Amen. And we should be more diligent now than we ever have been before about getting ready and staying ready and consistently being ready for his return. He's coming back. Amen. And this could be the day. This could be the hour. This could be the moment. So we must be ready. Amen. This passage is interesting because in other passages of scripture, we get the idea that the coming of the Lord is at the midnight hour. The day is nearly spent. We should work while it is day because the night is coming when no man can work. We get that that illustration of, of day ending and night coming and that being when the Lord would come back. But in this instance, Paul reverses the polarity and uses the example of dawn 
to represent the coming of the Lord. The long, dark night that we're living in is nearly spent, and the dawn is coming, and that dawn represents the, the coming of the Lord. And that analogy works well, especially in the context of discussing sin and salvation, because we, we're saved, but we live in a world that's governed by sin. Amen. We're saved, but we live in a world that's under the influence of the powers of darkness. And though we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another in that light we're living in a world that is darkness but there's a day coming when the light's going to dawn for the final time there's a day coming when the king of kings is going to return amen in scripture uh, darkness represents sin and light represents truth and and there's a day coming whenever every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess jesus christ is lord forever Amen. Truth is going to dawn. Amen. And so Paul says we're looking for the ending of this long, dark night that we're living in. There's a, the dawn is just around the corner. And so just as surely as I look at my alarm clock, or I try not to be in that condition, but look at my alarm clock at 745 and realize I can't go fast enough to get there in time. Amen. Just as surely as that spurs me to urgency, it should spur you to urgency. Amen. To recognize that the hour, the coming of the Lord is at hand, amen, that it is closer now than it ever has been before, that the night is far spent and the day is coming, that light is getting ready to dawn, amen? So Paul says in response to that, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Now darkness matches the night. The works of darkness are characterized in Scripture as sin. They are the kind of activities that are done under the cover of night. They are the, thing, the kind of things that no one wants to be seen doing. The thief strikes in the darkness of the night because he wants to remain anonymous. He doesn't want to get caught. Amen? Unrighteous men do unrighteous deeds in the, under the cover of darkness because they don't want their deeds to be broadcast, amen, for everyone to know and see. That's what the Scripture's talking about when it talks about works of darkness. So Paul admonishes us to cast off the works of darkness uh, in relation to his command to love one another. When he uses the word cast off, he's using the word that is, uh, is used in, in normal Greek culture to signify the taking off of a garment. And you take a garment off and you leave it behind. Amen. You, when you cast off the works of darkness, he's saying put them away. Take them off. Get rid of them. Uh, remove them from your person. Amen. And specifically, he's talking about our love one for another. So it becomes apparent that if we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves... We become guilty of putting on the works of darkness. Amen. Now, we can easily identify a whole lot of other works of darkness. As a matter of fact, Paul will in the context of this chapter, the next verse or so. But, but we, we're not so quick to identify our own arrogance and pride and, and, and prejudice and racism as works of darkness. But they are. Amen. If we defy the principle to love my neighbor as myself, we're putting on those works of darkness. Amen. And that is characterized as sin in Scripture. Amen. Racism, prejudice, just generally treating others in a way you wouldn't want to be treated. Even among church folk. It's not right. It's ungodly. It's unrighteous. It's putting on the works of darkness. Now the message to the church is that we should realize that the coming of the Lord is near. And we should never dare to indulge the works of darkness in our lives. We shouldn't, we shouldn't dare to treat somebody the way we don't want to be treated because to do so may put us in jeopardy because the Lord is coming back and this could be the day. Amen? As a side note, one has to wonder if your salvation is secure, 
regardless of how you presently live, then why put such a strong admonishment about casting off the works of darkness as the coming of the Lord draws near? If it doesn't matter, then why does it matter? Amen? Because it matters. Because it's important. That you don't have the works of darkness present in your life when the Lord comes back for the church. It's important that you're clothed in righteousness instead of in darkness. Amen? He goes on and says, and let us put on the armor of light. So we cast off the works of darkness, but we replace them with the armor of light. The connotation here is that righteous works are a defense against the darkness of night. Just like we take off the works of darkness, we put on in the same verb, the same usage that we're like putting on a garment, we put on the armor of light. So the, the Christian life, is lived out in the context of spiritual warfare. There's an enemy that wars against us, that vies for our soul, that is seeking to destroy us spiritually. Amen. And by doing the good deeds of the law that God requires us, by living righteously and holy and with integrity, we equip ourselves for the battle that we're fighting in. Amen. Conversely, when we compromise with darkness... We weaken ourselves spiritually. When we let uh, little actions and little inconsistency develop in, in our walk and in the way we talk and in the things we do, we tear down our armor. We tear down our ability to resist the works of darkness. Whenever we allow just a little darkness in or we allow just a little sin or we let just a, you know, we entertain just a little bit of that kind of thinking we know we shouldn't be involved in or that, that kind of entertainment or that kind of thing that, that carries us away from the presence of God when we let just a, a little bit of darkness in, it weakens us. But whenever we do that which is right and that which is godly and that which is holy and we seek after God and we pursue God, we strengthen ourselves. We put on the armor. It's almost as if we're adding reinforcement against the enemy's attacks. Amen. It's almost as if we're, we're putting on extra armor, if you will, to repel the attack of the enemy of our soul. Amen. So the characterization is take off the works of darkness and put on the armor. Not just works of light, the armor. It's the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness, the following after God that protects you, that shields you from the attack of your enemy. Amen? The works of darkness open you up. Just a little bitterness here. Just a little gossip here. Just a little slander there. We, we don't really recognize the impact of that. But what we're doing is we're creating weaknesses in our armor, places where the enemy will come back later and begin to work there and begin to worm his way into our life. And the works of darkness begin to find their way in. But whenever, instead of saying those slanderous things or spreading that gossip or, 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 or tearing down a brother or a sister, we choose to take the high road and we treat them with love and righteousness and goodness, no matter how they've treated us. Amen. We put armor where the devil intended for us to put weakness. We strengthen ourselves against the attack of the enemy instead of weakening ourselves in the face of our foe. Amen? Now, before we move on, let me say this. Paul was not wrong to express urgency about the return of the Lord. He said, God is coming back. He's coming back soon. The, the day is near. There's an urgency about the hour. And then we look back from 2,000 years later, and the Lord has not yet returned. And we wonder, or some wonder, you know, how can Paul say his coming is just around the corner if he hasn't come back yet? There are various biblical ways to answer that. First of all, God's way of looking at time and our way of looking at time are drastically different. Amen. A day is as a thousand years in the eyes of the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day. 
Jesus said, I'll be right back. And he's not back yet. But in his mind or in the way God sees time, it's just a little bitty passage that has happened between then to now. And he'll be right back. Amen. Another way to look at that is that uh, Paul was not wrong to express urgency because he demonstrates for us the proper posture of the church throughout the ages. Paul lived his life with the expectation that the return of the Lord was imminent. Amen. That God could come back at any moment. Amen. And that's the way we should live. Now, I know we're doing the end time series on Wednesday nights and, and, and there's a lot to be said there about how the rapture is going to happen and when it's going to happen and how the end time events play out. But, but the truth is that as a Christian, I should live my life with the understanding that this could be the day. I'm not waiting. For, I, don't, I don't need a headline to show up in the newspaper tomorrow morning to tell me, okay, now the Lord can come back. This could be the day. His day his coming is at hand. Amen. No matter what your belief is about the view of, uh, of prophecy and revelation and when the rapture happens, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, none of that should affect the fact that you live with an urgency of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're not guaranteed to see tomorrow. And this may be the last day you have. This may be the last chance, amen, that you'll ever have. So you should live your life with the understanding this could be the day that the Lord is going to come back again. I can't afford to get involved in the works of darkness. I can't afford to get involved in sin and immorality. I can't afford to let darkness find a weakness in my armor and begin to get into me, amen, and begin to affect me and afflict me. I can't afford that because this may be the day. And the urgency of that understanding should cause me to cast off everything that even resembles a work of darkness in my life. Amen? And so, Paul met every day with the posture that this could be the day the Lord is coming back. And if, it, it, we should be the same. Because if we decide that since he hasn't come back yet, he's not likely to come today then we're more prone to give in to the works of darkness and entangle ourselves in the sin of this world, which would be to our detriment on the day that he does come. Amen? Verse 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. So let us walk honestly as in the day. Let us live, not as children of the night, but as children of the day. Let our activities be honest and open. Let our deeds be deeds that don't have to be hidden in the darkness. Paul is telling us that we should live righteously and avoid sinful activities. Amen? This passage is reminiscent of the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. Reading from verses 19 through 21, it says this, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen. And so... What, what Paul is saying and what Jesus said are the same thing. Amen. We should not live as children of darkness. We should live as children of light. The rest of that verse lists six works of darkness that we should not partake of if we're going to walk in the light. Now, these six sins are presented in the original language as three pairs of, of relating things. And so uh, three pairs of deeds that go together. First, he says, not in rioting and drunkenness. Uh, that pair, rioting and drunkenness, the first word specifically relates to celebrations that were marked by uninhibited revelry, carousing, and wild partying. Now, that was often accompanied by excessive 
drinking to the point of complete and total intoxication. So this is an extreme example, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in, in reveling and, 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 and being drunk and not having control of your capacities and being involved in, in wild partying. partying. And the, the word for rioting there actually relates to a word that had to do with temple uh, sac- or temple celebrations in the worship of, of a false deity that, that were extremely immoral and ungodly. Amen? The second pair is not in chambering and wantonness. That word chambering seems odd in the English translation is a literal reference to uh, sexual fornication or sexual immorality. Uh, to put it into English language, uh, the use of the word chambering was something like to, to chamber together or to sleep together or to bed someone. Does that make sense? And so that's kind of the vernacular that's being used here. Amen. That idea of fornication and sexual immorality. Wantonness is the principle of lewdness or indecency or debauchery. And those two terms taken together, chambering and wantonness, refer to a lifestyle of unrestrained sexual promiscuity. It's, it's a deviant, immoral, debauchery-based lifestyle. Finally, he says, not in strife and envying. That final pair has to do with strife, which is quarreling and discord, and envy, which is related to jealousy. Together, the two denote a spirit of antagonistic competitiveness that fights to have its own way regardless of what it costs anybody or even itself. No matter what the harm may be, it wants to have things its own way. That's quite a list of works of darkness, and it is not in any way exhaustive. They're just some examples of the things that Paul is talking about. But what is notable here is that these are some pretty severe sins. When Paul starts talking about works of darkness, he doesn't talk about gossip and slander in the church. We understand those are works of darkness. But he starts talking about these very extreme and very severe sins. We recognize that Paul is writing to to church members. He's writing to people just like you and I that are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that are in church, that are trying to live for God. And he's warning them not to participate in the works of darkness. He's warning them not to get involved in sinful things. But these examples are pretty extreme. One would never expect a Christian to be involved in drunken rioting or in sexual promiscuity. One wouldn't expect a Christian to get found in these kind of circumstances that this verse describes. But the warning stands as testament of the fact that none of us has completely escaped the influence of our sin nature. And if we compromise in the little things, if we weaken our armor, if we compromise in the small areas, these are the extreme examples of exactly where we will end up. Amen? Nobody starts at riding in drunkenness. Nobody starts at chambering and wantonness. Amen. That, that all is the, the, that's the, the end of the process. That's the extreme example. But I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care how long you've been living for God. You're not, you're not immune to temptation. You're not, you're not uh, absolutely desensitized to the effects of your flesh and the sin nature that is within you. And, and, and if you're not careful, you can find yourself when you give in to that sin nature in little ways walking towards giving it in big ways because that's where it ends. Amen? These examples may be extreme that they provide us with strong examples of why we cannot afford to compromise with sin even in small ways. Why we can't afford to compromise with the works of darkness even in little ways because sin will never be satisfied. Sin will always take you further than you meant to go every single time. Amen? So what started as just a small infraction ends in 
the extreme example. And so that's kind of the context in which you find these very extreme examples. And Paul saying to the church, hey, don't be involved in these things. It's the realization that if you give in to sin, you could end up here. Amen? Verse 14 says, But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Instead of engaging in the works of darkness, we're instructed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we're supposed to strive to be Christ-like in every way possible. Putting on Jesus Christ is the equivalent of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is where this discussion started back in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is about that process of becoming a, a new creature in Christ Jesus, of putting on the new man, of living a changed life, of being different than you were when you started. Amen? And as we've already learned in Romans 12 and 1 and 2, this is an ongoing process. This is something that we're involved in. We are to resist conforming to the world continually, and we are to continually be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may show forth what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Now Paul adds to that instruction, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof. We're instructed not to give opportunities to the flesh to gratify its lust. That means that we avoid anything that might arouse the hidden desires of our sin nature. We avoid anything that might put us in the place that, that sin would begin to take over of our life. How you live matters. Amen? And the places that you go and the things that you do and the environments that you put yourself in will ultimately influence how you live. And so Paul said, don't put yourself in the place that your flesh will be aroused to fulfill its sinful desires. The sin nature you're going to have with you always, that capacity to be tempted, that capacity to end up in those vile places we talked about in the last verse, that's going to be with you always. And so what do you do? You don't put yourself in the place that you make provision for the flesh. I say it often, but the... the, the former alcoholic that's been liberated by the power of God doesn't hang out in bars. Amen? Because to put yourself in that place is to put yourself in the place that you give provision for the flesh to fulfill its sinful desires. It's to put yourself in a place where you weaken your defenses. Amen? Now the Greek word here for provision pertains to foresight or forethought. It has to do with what happens in your mind. Every sinful act is first conceived in the mind. The body never does anything that the mind doesn't first think of. Amen? Except in extreme medical instances where your body is disconnected from your mind. Your body doesn't act. Sin doesn't happen without first passing through the threshold and the gateway of your thought process. So Paul is admonishing us not to put ourselves in places where temptation will be aroused within us. But he's also admonishing us not to dwell on ungodly thoughts. Not to dwell on thoughts that would lead us towards temptation. You may be guilty of making provision for sin simply by dwelling on sin in your mind, by giving place to it in your thought process as a man thinks he is. Amen? As a man thinks he eventually does. And so the principle is, that by giving a place for the thought process to happen, you make provision for the sin to occur. In that final verse, we've made the progression from the actual works of darkness 
to our thought life. And it is in our thought life that the struggle for righteousness will ultimately be won or lost. Paul started this section with a command to be transformed, Romans 12 and 2, by the renewing of our minds. But now he brings us back to that same directive. Don't make room for sin in your mind. Don't make provision for sin in your thought life. A lot of people want to separate their thought life from reality. I think whatever I want to think, as long as I don't do it, it's okay. I'm going to tell you something. That's not true. Because what you think eventually becomes what you do. It's giving place. The old adage compares tempting thoughts to birds and says you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from stopping and building a nest in your hair. You've heard that. There's some truth to that statement. You're not immune to temptation. Your thought life is the place where all temptation begins. And you can't stop certain thoughts from entering your mind. From time to time, you're going to think things that perhaps you shouldn't have thought. Your morals will be challenged by your thought life. Your holiness, righteousness, and godliness will be challenged by the thoughts that run through your mind. But it is in that moment that both the old adage and the words of Paul become true. You may not be able to stop the thought from entering your mind, but you can control how long it stays there. You can control whether or not you dwell on it. And it is the act of dwelling on the thought of sin that makes provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. It's the act of thinking on it that opens the doorway to the action. Would you stand with me as Brother Ryan comes? This morning, I want to challenge you to bring your thought life under submission to the principles of holiness and godliness. Let's come together in the presence of the Lord for a few moments on a Sunday morning. And let's tell the Lord, I want you to not just rule over my actions, not just see, I, I firmly believe that your actions are symptoms of your thought life. I really believe that what you do is an outgrowth of what you think and what you believe. And so the principle is very sound and very strong that we should find a place of prayer and we should pray. So often we react to sin or we react to wrong actions. Say, oh, God, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have been involved in that. I, I, I stumbled into a situation. that. But the truth is we never really deal with the problem. The problem's in our mind. You know why people get trapped in repetitive sin that you can't escape? You repent, and you repent, and you repent, and you repent, but you can't ever break free from it. It's because you're not doing anything but dealing with the symptom. It's what's going on in your mind that results in the sin. I think it would be very good for us to come into the presence of God and ask Him to transform our minds, to renew our minds to the power of the Holy Ghost. To, to allow the Holy Ghost just to move in us, work in us. It's that renewal that results in the transformation that causes us to become the people that He's called us to be. Unjust, unfair dealings in business. Not treating folks right. Not, not doing things the way that they should be done, but doing things in a way that you wouldn't want to be found out, that you've got to sneak around to do it. Those things are, are, are works of darkness, but they're the outgrowth of a thought process. And what we're asking you to do this morning is to bring your mind before the Lord and say, Lord, would you take authority over my thoughts? The Scripture says that the weapons of our warfare are not, are, are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ.